Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel 9. Last week, in our time together, uh, we, we are finishing our topical series, Paving the Way for the Revelation of Jesus Christ, Paving the Way for our Study of Last Things. And uh, last week we talked in Daniel 2, Daniel 5, Daniel 7, uh, Daniel 2, excuse me, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. Um, we talked about um, the big picture as it relates to the kingdoms of this world about Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the image, about uh, Daniel's vision of the beasts, and then a second vision. And we put it all together seeking to understand who was being spoken of there, why we believe it was being spoken of, and then what it means for us. And we saw that God has given us the plan of the, the dominant world empires from Babylon all the way to the kingdom of heaven, all the way to Christ's kingdom, all the way to the millennial kingdom. And we saw Babylon, then that would give way to Medo-Persia, then that would give way to Greece, then that would give way to Rome, and then Rome would remain as the influence along with some weaker nations, some nations of clay, right? And those nations of clay and those nations of iron would form a ten-nation confederacy. They, they're the toes of the image. They're the horns on that great final beast. And uh, then there would be an eleventh horn that would come. We identify that eleventh horn as Antichrist. We talked a little bit about that last week. We'll talk a little bit more about that this week. And we'll talk more about it as we continue in the book of the Revelation and actually dig into its exposition. And so we see these kingdoms that arose. Of course, Antichrist plucked, out, plucked up three of those ten kings. And we got all of that information last week. Well, this week, we're going to see another vision. And it is going to become very clear that this one is of a different flavor. God has given us the plan for the, the Gentile nations. Now he's going to give us the plan for the nation of Israel. And Daniel 9, for coming from Daniel 1 through 8, which was all about the Gentile nations and God's dealings with the Gentile nations, in Daniel 9, he's turning his eyes toward Israel. And 9, 10, 11, and 12, he's talking about Israel. And that's what we're going to cover today, the big picture as it relates to Israel. Now, once again, what my purpose today, and I'm sorry to do this on Daylight Savings Time morning, but my purpose today will be to prove some things to you. Because typically when, when you hear prophecy, uh, you hear people saying numbers. There's going to be this many days and that many weeks and that many years and this and that. And you hear them and you say, okay, and they say in 70 weeks stands for 490 years and uh, one week is seven years and half a week is three and a half years. And, and, and you hear these things and maybe you're comfortable with these things because you've heard them. But the question is, where does it come from? And that's what I'm going to show you this morning, is where we come up with that stuff. How do we know that these weeks actually mean years, and, and that, that these many years is what we're dealing with, and that there's gaps, and, and, and where, do we, where, where does all this stuff come from? Don't just take my word for it, in other words. Let's dig down and understand that. And that's what we're going to do today. So again, it's going to be a little bit more academic luxury. We're going to trudge through a little bit of mud, if you will. I hope it'll be interesting for you. And then next week we'll do our book sermon and then two weeks on the resurrection and, and then we're actually getting into Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. So the, the light is at the end of the tunnel here. Uh, the foundation has been laid and really, I believe, laid, uh, not, not necessarily saying this as my, my teaching has been clear, but as far as the content that we've covered, 
We've laid a very solid foundation for you to understand foundationally where we stand, why we stand there, and to build upon that strong foundation. So we begin today in Daniel chapter 9, right? We covered uh, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. Today, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, the Bible tells us this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sacrifice cloth and ashes. So Daniel is reading in the scriptures and he's actually reading what we call now Jeremiah 25. Now they did not have chapter numbers and verse numbers. They were reading scrolls. Um, the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired. They were added later, right? But he was reading in what we now call Jeremiah 25 and that was written some 70 years earlier in 605 BC in the fourth year, the Bible tells us. Uh, of the King Jehoiakim, and that was the year that, that the king of Babylon first came to Jerusalem and took people captive. As a matter of fact, that was the year that Daniel was taken into captivity and was brought to Babylon. So, Jeremiah 25.11, the prophet states that the nation of Israel would be desolate, that the, that the land would be desolate for 70 years, that the nation would go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. That number of 70 was given because there had been 490 years of history, of Israel's history, where they had not kept a sabbatical year where they had not kept the Lord's Sabbath. And on that year, the land was supposed to rest. And so there were 70 years of rest that had been deprived, that, that the land had been deprived of because they had not obeyed God and kept those Sabbath years. And God said, I'm giving those Sabbath years back to the land. So he took them out of the land for 70 years as a punishment, as it were, as the chastening for their refusal to obey God. That's where God came up with that number. So Daniel is now in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede was not the king over all of Medo-Persia. He was what we call a, a sub-king uh, or, or an under king. Uh, the, the king at this time was Cyrus the Great. Under him, over various regions, there would be uh, kings that were appointed to rule over various regions. This is similar to what we see in Jesus' day, where the king, when Jesus is born, is a man named Herod. However, Herod is not the ruler of Rome. He's the ruler over Judea underneath the authority of Caesar Augustus. A similar idea. And we, we sort of see that in our own country with uh, we have our federal level and then we have our state level governments and our state governments operate uh, underneath the federal government. Uh, federalism, of course, uh, being what it is, our representative republic is a little different because authority is different. Uh, however, we, we might be able to relate to some of these ideas in that way. So, um, Daniel recognized, he's reading in Jeremiah, and he recognized from the scriptures that the 70 years is up. It's coming to an end. And he begins to beg God to perform that which God has said would come to pass. It's an interesting example that we have from scripture, that Daniel got down on his knees to pray and to fast over that which the word of God said was true. That gives us a good insight into what it means to pray, how we pray, why we pray, and uh, our motivations even for doing so. 
So Daniel enters into a beautiful prayer of confession, which unfortunately this, this morning for time sake, we're going to skip. And at the end of this prayer, the Lord answers him. And the Lord answers him with insights into God's plan for the nation of Israel. Now, God has given the plan for the Gentile nations from Babylon till the end of, uh, of history, really, till the, end of the, millenn- till, till the beginning of the millennial kingdom, and then that leads, of course, into heaven. God is going to do the same for Israel. He's going to give the plan from the time of the end of the captivity all the way to the kingdom. And we see this beginning in Daniel 24. So the Bible says this, in Daniel, excuse, Daniel 9, verse 24. The Bible says this, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So God announces what he calls 70 weeks, a 70-week program for the nation. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And notice several things about this 70-week prophecy. He says here, the object of the 70 weeks, upon thy people and thy holy city. So we ask the question, who are Daniel's people? Well, depending on who you talk to, there are two different answers to this. Number one is Daniel's people are all of those who have faith. That would be a metaphorical idea. And this would be in the vein of kind of how Paul teaches about Abraham in the New Testament, that that Paul says that we are all spiritual children of Abraham because we've accepted, we've followed him in faith, right? We've, We've emulated his example of faith, and so we're all spiritual children of Abraham. And uh, um, uh, in, in the Reformed movements and such, they say, okay, so we are the only children of Abraham, and, and that's not what, what we would believe at Legacy Baptist Church. And that would be that similar vein. Well, again, I would not agree with that here. And one of the primary reasons why is because it doesn't just say thy people, it also says thy holy city. And Daniel's prayer is a prayer in regard not to the future of the faith. His prayer is in regard to the future of his nation that has been in captivity for 70 years, literally and physically. And he's praying for the literal physical deliverance from captivity of the literal physical seed of Israel. And so an answer comes, and it's for Daniel's people. That second idea then, the one that I would believe is accurate, is that, we, that, that thy people, Daniel's people, that's the nation of Israel. That's the Jewish people. And then thy city, well, what, what's, what holy city is there? Well, the holy city is Jerusalem. So this is God saying there's a future and I'm going to give you the future for the nation of Israel and I'm going to give you the future for the city of Jerusalem. And interpretively, this makes sense. So when God says this this prophecy is for them, we we are now going to interpret this prophecy as if it's for Israel. This This is God's plan for Israel. Next, let's consider his purpose, the outcome of these 70 weeks. What are these 70 weeks for? Well, he gives us several things that these 70 weeks are for. To finish transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy. That means to bring all of the visions to to an end and the prophecies to an end. And then to anoint the most holy. 
So within these 70 weeks, all of these things, God says, are going to happen. Now, as you look at these outcomes, take special note. Not all of these have come to pass in the world, have they? We have not seen all of these outcomes come to pass. We can argue for several of these. We can argue that that transgression uh, in, in a spiritual sense was finished on the cross. An end of sins was finished on the cross. Reconciliation for iniquity was finished on the cross. We can say that those were finished on the cross, and I'm comfortable with that. But certainly, an, bringing in everlasting righteousness, sealing the vision and prophecy, making all visions and prophecies complete, anointing the most holy, uh, elevating him to his position as, as king, those have not yet happened, have they? We cannot say that those have yet happened. And remember our object. Unto whom or, or for whom are these outcomes being prophesied? Well, not necessarily for the Gentile nations, but for Israel. These 70 weeks are the 70 weeks of Israel. By the time these 70 weeks are fulfilled, all of these things will be accomplished in Israel. And we, are, we can recognize today that most certainly um, transgression, finished sins, and reconciliation for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, this is not, not where Israel is today by any means. Now also consider the time factor in this. It says 70 weeks. 70 weeks is not that long of a time, is it? There's 52 weeks in a year. By this reckoning, 16 months is what we're dealing with here. One year and four months of time. That's not a lot of time. And so we start to say, well, are we talking about a literal are, are, are we looking for a literal interpretation here or do we need to look outside of a literal interpretation? If we assume 70 weeks began at some time in the past and uh, the Bible says that this would begin at the, the, the going forth of the announcement to rebuild Jerusalem, well then we should expect that in, in 16 months, in one year and four months time, all of these things would be done with. Well, the problem is that hasn't happened yet. The command to rebuild Jerusalem happened and one year and four months later, all of these things had not yet come to pass. We, I just mentioned when these 70 weeks begin. We see that in verse 25. The Bible says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So the 70 weeks, the Bible says, begins when there's a command to, re to rebuild Jerusalem, to build and restore Jerusalem. Now we'll continue to flesh this out, but it is important to mention immediately that this word weeks here does not have to mean a set of seven days. And this is where things will begin to fall into place for us. The Hebrew word that's used here, that's, that's, that's translated weak, it's a good translation because the word is used quite regularly to speak of a set of seven days. And we recognize that there, there's a set of seven days in every week, right? There, that, that there's seven days in every week. So a, a, a group of seven days is a week, and the word here is a group of seven. And quite regularly it's used to talk about a week. But it doesn't have to be a week. It can be a group of seven anythings. It can be a group of seven weeks. It can be a group of seven years. It could be a group of seven months. It could be a group of seven centuries. It could be a group of seven millennia. A set of seven or a group of seven here. 
is what we're talking about. And we'll, we'll see why that's important as we continue here. So the Bible says that from the commandment to restore Jerusalem unto the coming of Messiah the Prince would be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. Uh, three score and two, right? A score is 20. Uh, we don't use that very often anymore unless you're reading the Gettysburg Address. Uh, but a score is 20. And so three score would be 20 times three or 60 uh, three score and two would be 62 weeks. So there's seven weeks and 62 weeks. Add seven to 62 and you get 69. So there's 69 weeks between the command to restore Jerusalem and Messiah the Prince, the Bible says. Now, 69 weeks is one week shy of 70. So there's one extra week at the end there that is not yet accounted for. Keep that in your mind. Now, if we were to, the, the command to restore Jerusalem, uh, there's some shaky history here as far as the exact time and whatnot, but there was a command put out by uh, King Artaxerxes I to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 B.C. 69 weeks past 445 B.C., you're at 444, 443, depending on when in 445 B.C. he gives that decree. That was not the year Messiah came. I can tell you that, right? He did not come in 443 B.C. As a matter of fact, that's still 450 years or so before Jesus would come. And so we start to say, hmm, I wonder if this 70 weeks thing is not actually 70 weeks as in sets or, or, or uh, um, seven-day increments here. Sins did not end that year. That year was not the year that reconciliation was made. All of that stuff did not happen in 443 B.C., so now we have a couple of options, right? We're reading this and we're trying to discern it. We've got 70 weeks. We've got a, a, a two definitive time delineators. We know that Messiah the Prince has come. We know that the command to rebuild Jerusalem happened. Those are both historical events, historical facts. And we can start to work these things together to understand what's being spoken of here. Because we know, as we've talked about, we talked about many weeks ago, time in prophecy is not always clear. It's not always sequential. It's not always exactly what we would think of when we think of time and sequence and prophecy. So in this case, we have, we have some big clues that help us out. And I'm going to walk you through many of those clues together. Let's continue to walk through the text in Daniel 9. The Bible says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So here we find that after the 69 weeks, the, the 7 weeks and then the 62 weeks, Messiah would be cut off. It says there after the 62 weeks, we know that the 62 weeks come after the 7 weeks. So after the full 69 weeks from the command to, restore, to, to rebuild Jerusalem, to Messiah the Prince, after that, Messiah would be cut off. Messiah would be killed. Did that happen in history? Yes, it did happen in history. We know that Jesus uh, died on the cross and he rose again. Uh, we, we know that Messiah was cut off. And then the Bible says that there would be a man, uh, that, that the people of the prince that shall come, we would find if we continued to study Daniel, and I've preached through it, so I'd encourage you to go back and look, uh, that the prince that shall come is Antichrist. 
And the Bible says that the people of the prince that shall come will destroy the sanctuary. Was the sanctuary destroyed? Yes, it was. When was it destroyed? 70 AD. Who destroyed it? Rome. And so we have now things from history that we can place into this. Rome destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Messiah came around zero, uh, about maybe three, two, two, two to three BC. Uh, Messiah died somewhere around 80, 30, 33. Um, and then, of course, the, the temple was destroyed in, in AD 70. So we're tracing all of this. Now, if we trace one year and four months back from when Jesus was born, we're not going to get to a command to restore Jerusalem. If we trace one year and four months back from the destruction of the temple, we're, we're not going to get to a command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Uh, so we've got these time elements. We've got this 70 weeks. We're going we're, we're to figure out how to put it together. Verse 27, as we continue in the text. And he shall confirm the covenant with many. This is the prince, the prince that shall come. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, this is the 70th week now, in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate, the desolate. So this is speaking of the prince that shall come, the one that we know to be Antichrist, and Daniel, uh, uh, as, as we continue, um, uh, as we continue our study, we'll find that to be true. Verse 27 says that this prince that shall come, that will come out of the same people who destroyed the, the temple, that would be uh, the, the, the Western world, specifically Rome, will confirm a covenant with many for one week. So there's going to be a one-week covenant with the nation of Israel. And we know it's talking about the nation of Israel because these 70 weeks have to do with Israel, Right? And the first 69 have to, do, have to do with Israel, and we can trace them through history, so we'd assume the 70th to be as well. And he's going to make a covenant with them for one week, and in the middle of that week, he's going to break that covenant. Now, again, a week is, a, is seven somethings. If we're thinking days here, then we're talking about three and a half days for the covenant, and then another three and a half days, and he'll break that covenant. And the Bible says that he will overspread his abominations in that time Halfway through this week, the prince will break that covenant. And we connect this statement with the insight that we are given in Daniel 12. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says this, Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, which is in the middle of the week, right? From the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up in the middle of the week, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. One thousand two hundred and ninety days. All right, so that's more than a week. A week is seven days. And the Bible says that from the time of the abomination of desolation in the midst of the week, to the end of the week is 1,260 days. This is the insight that we are, uh, 290 days, excuse me. This is the insight that we need in order to put some things together. Um, let's begin to visualize the data. I, I, I like to visualize data. So let's visualize the data together. Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. Command to rebuild Jerusalem. There would be seven weeks. After that seven weeks, there'd be 62 weeks. After that, that set of seven weeks, then 62 weeks, Messiah is cut off. 
And then there's one week and then the end. Within that one week, that 70th week, is the abomination of desolation in the middle. There's a, a three and a half, what we would cons uh, consider days, right? We, that's not what we're, we're going to end. But if we're just thinking about a week here, there's three and a half somethings, days. Uh, there's three and a half days on either end. In the midst of that week, there will be an abomination of desolation. However, if we combine that with Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, we find that from the abomination of desolation to the end, it's 1,290 days. There's actually an, a couple more numbers given there. The other number that's given is 1,335 days. The Bible says, Blessed is the man that makes it to the 1,335th day. And, and so now we're trying to reconcile three and a half days, or, or, or uh, three and a half, the midst of this week, the second half of this week, with the number 1,290. And in order to do this, of course, we continue to study. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, the Bible tells us this, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, these things shall be finished. So we find a slightly different description of this half week here than we found in Daniel um, uh, 9. Rather than saying that the final half week would be three and a half days, which it never said. It, it, it talked about a week, but it never said anything about days. That would be an assumption that we would make, right? Rather than saying days, it simply says that it would be three and a half times. A time, times, which would be a dual, two, and then half a time. Three and one half. Three and one half times. So let's change our chart, our data, to reflect this. Now instead of saying three and a half days... This one week has three and a half times on one end of the abomination of desolation and three and a half times on the other end of the abomination of desolation. Well, pastor, aren't those times going to be days? Well, they're not. Um, they're not going to be days. Stay with me here and we'll continue to, to, to gather the data and understand what we're talking about here. We see the link now. Three and a half times, 1,290 days. In Daniel 7, Daniel saw a vision of a beast, right? A final beast with ten horns. And an eleventh horn which rose over those ten horns, subduing three of those ten, plucking them out. These horns stand for power. They stand for kingdoms. This eleventh horn will be a great king that rises. In Daniel 7, verse 25, he, the Bible said, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, and times, and the dividing of, of a time. So we see the same idea here, that this notable eleventh horn will be given to destroy nations, to, destroy, to, to rule over Israel for a time, times, and the dividing of a time, three and a half times. Now we can link Daniel 7 to Daniel 12 to Daniel 9. Time, time, and half a time, the second half of this week, three and a half times. Now let's bring this together with Revelation chapter 13. I'll read verse 1 and then I'll jump to verses 5 through 7. 
And I stood upon the sands of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. Now, if we continue to study this, this, this horn that rises out of the sea, we will find that he plucks up three of the kingdoms of the ten, correlating to the horns on the beast in Daniel 7, where three of the horns are plucked from the, the head. This notable eleventh horn, that's what we're speaking of here. This is the same one that would do the abomination of desolation. This is Antichrist. And we have a new time frame given here, right? Forty-two months that he is allowed to continue, that, his, that power is given unto him. Power is given unto him for 42 months. We continue reading. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So here we have this, this beast with ten crowns, three of those uh, crowns. A ruling over ten kings, like we saw in Daniel 7. He wars against the saints, like in Daniel 7. He blasphemes God, like we read in Daniel 7. And then we have this 42-month period. Now, there's 12 months in a year, right? So if we were to take 42 months and turn it into years, 42 months would be three years and six months. Three and a half years. 42 months is three and a half years. So let's keep building our understanding. In Daniel 9, there's an abomination of desolation. This abomination of desolation will happen halfway through a week. A week which we've now found to be three and a half times on one end, three and a half times on the other end, seven times. Daniel 12, 11 tells us 1,290 days and then gives us a second number, 1,335 days. Daniel 7, 25 and Revelation 13, 1 through 7 establish for us that the power of this abomination of desolation will be for 42 months. Now, as we begin to connect months, days, weeks, and times, we need to understand how our calendar would differ from a prophetic calendar. Our calendar has 365 days in a year, right? Uh, it's the Gregorian calendar. There's a notable every fourth year, 366 days. Uh, 365 days in any normal year, 366 days on a leap year. This is because our calendar is based upon a solar cycle. And in a solar cycle, in other words, how long it takes for the Earth to go around the sun, a solar year is 365 days, 6 hours, 9 minutes, and 9.76 seconds. Now we round that down to 365 days. But the problem is when we round it down to 365 days, now we're off every year by 6 hours, 9 minutes, and 9.76 seconds. And that becomes a real problem if you're trying to keep dates. And so every fourth year, in order to solve this problem, 6 times 4 is 24, right? There's 24 hours in a day. So every fourth year, we add a day to compensate for the 6 hours, 9 minutes, and 9.76 seconds that we, that we miss every year in our solar cycle. And that means that every four years we're still, history is getting off by 9 minutes and, uh, what, not, not 9 minutes and 9.76 seconds every, every uh, 
four years, we're, we're, or every year, we're, we're off in our history. Um, but to make it up, up for that, we, we have our solar or our, our leap year. Prophetically, however, they don't use the solar calendar. Prophetically, they get closer to a lunar calendar. Not even quite that, however. A month in prophecy is always 30 days long. And a year in prophecy is always 360 days. A year is 360 days. A month is 30 days. 12 months, 360 days in a year. How do we know that, Pastor? Well, we draw that from Revelation chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles in the holy city, shall they tread under foot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. So these, these, uh, the, the holy city will be tread under for forty-two months, and the power will be given to these witnesses for 1,260 days. 1,262 days uh, into 42 months is 30 days per month. Exactly. 360 days per year. Exactly. If we do the math. So then if we come back to our chart, we can begin to punch the numbers. We have a time period of 42 months where there's an evil man who will persecute God's people. This lines up with the event in Daniel 12, which we call the abomination of desolation. And we find a similar, though not precise, number of days here. Revelation says 1,260 days is, is three and a half months. Uh, uh, Daniel, however, speaks of 1,290 days and then 1,335 days. And we can talk about why that is. Uh, we would recognize that there's going to be a time period between Christ's coming and the, the establishment of the millennial kingdom of 45 days. That's beyond the scope of our study today. We'll get there when we get there. Uh, uh, but I've given you enough numbers as it, as it stands. So, 42 months divided into uh, days here is exactly 1,260 days or three and a half years. And then we use this knowledge to go back to Daniel Nine, where we interpret the 70 weeks. We've shown by comparison between Daniel and Revelation that the final week of the 70 weeks has to be seven years, right? It must be seven years. If the abomination of desolation takes place halfway through and afterwards there are 42 months where he's in power before the end, that's three and a half years, that means that that final week is actually seven years long. Which means when we're talking about a week, we're not talking about seven days, we're talking about seven years. So when Daniel talks about the 70 weeks of Israel, we're not talking about 70 sets of seven days. I keep saying sets. A set is two. I don't know what units. I don't know. I don't know what word to use there. I apologize if it's distracting you. It's distracting me. We're not talking about seven days in a week. We're talking about seven years. A group of seven years. So 70 weeks would then be 70 times seven years, or 490 years. So now we're looking for 490 years of history. And we're looking for 69 of those years from the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the, to the coming of Messiah the Prince. That's 483 years that we're looking for between the command to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of the prince. Let me summarize this briefly and then we'll move on. I hope everyone's got it. You're with me. This is no problem. You all have math minds. But if not, let me just kind of walk through it all together. We're dealing with a group of seven somethings. 
Daniel 7.25, as the angel tells the 11th horn of the fourth kingdom that will wear out the saints, the Bible says that the saints will be given to him for a time, a times, and then half a time, three and a half somethings. Daniel 9.27, the abomination of desolation is said to be in full operation for one half of the final week. A week being seven, half of that being three and a half somethings. Revelation 13.5 describes this abomination of desolation as having power for 42 months. Daniel 12, verse 7 says that Israel will flee from this wicked man for a time, a time, and half a times, three and a half somethings. Revelation 12, verse 6, God says that they will flee from this wicked man, man for 1,260 days. 1,260 days divided into months is 42 months, divided into years is three and a half years. Imposed upon the 70 weeks, that's three and a half years out of seven years, which gives us years instead of days, which gives us 490 years rather than 490 days of history that Daniel's dealing with in the history of Israel's completion. Whew. So, Pastor, why don't you just do it all for us and tell us? Be, that, that, that's fine. That's sufficient. Until our children grow up and they hear some person saying, no, 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 and someone else is setting all these arbitrary numbers, right? And why are, why are this guy's arbitrary numbers any different from that guy's arbitrary numbers? So I'm, I'm here to tell you the numbers aren't arbitrary. Scripture is a unified book. That was a long time ago we started that, right? First week of the year. Scripture is a unified book. Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. We study to show ourselves approved, and it all fits. It all fits. This book was not just a random book compiled by a bunch of random people for a random time. It's a unified book. We are comparing Scriptures that were written thousands of years apart and we're using them to bring about a coherent single message. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. What do we see then? Well, the prophecy says that from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 49-year period and then another 434-year period comprising 483 years of history. There's a debate about exactly when this happens. And there's also a debate about what happened to that 49-year point. Why did God break it up into seven weeks and then 62 weeks? We, we don't fully know why uh, from history that God uh, did that. But here's what we do know. That at the end of that 69 weeks, Messiah would come and then Messiah would be cut off. So what do we see from history? Well, Artaxerxes gave a decree to rebuild Jerusalem in approximately 445 B.C., and we would, you know, Jesus Christ's death, of course, there's a lot of debate about when that is, anywhere from 30 to 33 A.D. Let me give you a few numbers here. If we were to compute from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D. on, on a Gregorian calendar, we'd only get 477 years, not 483 years. But if we allow a prophetic year to be as it fits in Scripture, the 360 days, as we know from Daniel 12 and Revelation 11, instead of being a 365-day year, then from March 14th, 445 B.C., when, when many speculate the command was given by Artaxerxes, they kept pretty good records in Medo-Persia, to April 6th of 32 A.D. is 173,880 uh, uh, days. Divide that by 360 days in a prophetic year and we get 483 years exactly. 483 years 
from March 14, 445 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D. Now, can we, is it perfectly clean? Can we say, yes, Jesus died on April 6, 32 A.D.? Can we say, yes, Artaxerxes gave the decree on March 14, 445 B.C.? No, we can't. We, our records aren't that clear. But if we can get within the ballpark of that time and we see that it's 483 prophetic years, can our faith just make up the rest? Are we okay with that? Uh, we, we, we don't have the exact, but, but wow, that's accurate. 483 prophetic years, 360-day years, 173,880 days. It's there. It's in history. Command to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes I to somewhere around 30 AD. Now, take note, we don't exactly know when the Bible says to the coming of Messiah the Prince. Does that mean his birth? Does that mean his baptism? Does that mean his death? We don't know. All we know is that after those 69 weeks, Messiah would die and the temple would be destroyed. And that's what we see. So 69 weeks, 483 years, Messiah comes. Those years are in sequence, one right after another, sequential, contiguous. 483 years, Messiah dies. We're looking for one more week, right? We're looking for the 70th week. When is the 70th week going to come? Well, here's the thing. In order for the 70th week to come, what do we need? We need a seven-year covenant. And we need that covenant to be broken halfway through. And we need that, that person, the abomination of desolation, to persecute Israel. And then we need Messiah to come and to deliver them. None of that's happened yet, has it? And so we see 69 weeks in a row, and they all make sense sequentially, but now we've got this 70th week. And the interesting thing is that 70th week is seven years. The temple is not even destroyed for another 40 years after, the, after Messiah, Messiah's death. The temple eventually is destroyed by Rome. And so, as we consider God's objectives in Daniel 9.24, to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Holy One, uh, this has not happened yet, and this has not happened yet because we have not seen that 70th week yet. Pastor, how is that possible? How are those 69 weeks able to be there, but not the 70th? Well, we taught on this as well. Remember a couple months ago when we talked about perspective and prophecy? that Daniel saw 70 weeks in a row. He saw seven weeks. He saw 62 weeks. Then he saw one week. And he saw them as if he were standing on the mountaintop, right? Because prophets saw future events more within the context of space than time. So Daniel was looking at the peaks of history and he saw these, God showed him the 70 weeks, but what he didn't show them is the valley between the 69th and the 70th week. He didn't show him the time gap between the 69th and the 70th week. And that's valid. I spent, we spent our time on that Sunday talking about how this happens regularly in Scripture. Right? That this is a valid thing that prophecies do. Again, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. If I just told you this is valid, that would be fine. But we, in that message, proved it. We went to Scripture and we saw it happen again and again and again that prophecies do this. So, we should have no problem with it here in the 70 weeks of Daniel because we've seen other places where this has taken place, where this has come to pass. That's why we go, that's why we dig to the foundation. So that I can tell you that there's a time gap between the 69th and the 70th week and you don't look at me like, well, how do we know that? And so when somebody comes up to you and says, 
No, 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 that can't be. We have to find 70 continuous weeks. We have to find 490 continuous years. You can say, no, we don't, because there's this time and this time and this time in the Bible where I, I, I have studied and I know that that's not the case. And if it's happened here and here and here, why can't it happen here? This is why we dig down to our foundations. So we're living in a gap today between the 69th and the 70th week where God is no longer dealing with Israel immediately as he was dealing with them before. Israel was God's chosen people. He used them in the world specifically. And then there was a time where Israel rejected their Messiah. Messiah was cut off at the end of 69 weeks. And because Messiah was cut off, because he was rejected, they were not spiritually in a place where God could allow the 70th week to happen. They weren't ready for the 70th week. So God, as it were, set Israel aside and commissioned the church to continue the work, to become his elect group slated to show the world how to be rightly related to him. And Israel is, as it were, on pause. But that 70th week still has to happen. And until that 70th week happens, all of those goals of Daniel 9.24 that need to be brought to pass, those six purposes cannot be fulfilled. And those 70 weeks, as we've established already, are Israel's weeks. They're not weeks for the church. The church wasn't around for the first 69. The church was not God's group that he was working through in the first 69. He is going to recommission Israel in the 70th week, and he's going to finish his program with Israel. It's Israel's 70 weeks. Our program, the Gentiles program, that was given in Daniel 1 through 8. The church is the mystery. The church has something entirely different. We talked about that a couple weeks ago as well. The church is unique in God's plan because we are already victorious in Christ. And so we fit into this time period, this valley between the 69th and the 70th week where we are busy showing the world how to be rightly related to God, where we are here as God's representative group And this fits the pattern of meeting just fine. Now, where I'm going with this today, what I want to focus on today, and, and this is an important thing as we get into prophecy, is when I tell you that the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ and that the seven years of tribulation are not for the church, that's a big debate today. That's a really big debate today in the church. Will the church go through the tribulation? Does the church have to go through the tribulation? There are arguments on both sides. Why is it that the, that Legacy Baptist Church feels comfortable saying, and we haven't even, I, haven't, I haven't even taught on the rapture yet. I haven't taught on that. We're going to teach on that. Why is it, though, foundationally, that we feel comfortable saying the church does not need to go through the tribulation? Because that last week is not about us. When I tell you that the tribulation serves two purposes, it's to judge the unbelieving world and it's to chasten Israel back to himself, well, we don't need to be judged with the world. The scriptures make that clear. And we don't need to be chastened back to God because we are already blameless and harmless and, and, and unreprovable in his sight, Ephesians and Colossians tell us. We're already in Christ. We don't serve a purpose in the tribulation. And that's one of several reasons. And, and the, the, the important element to this then, and this comes up today, this is important for today, is this. This is our application. God still has a plan for Israel. 
It is important for us to understand that God still has a plan for Israel. Now, this is not as controversial today as it would have been 100 years ago, but it's becoming more controversial again today in the church. Uh, throughout history, the Catholic Church dominance of Western culture in particular, uh, and even through the Re Reformation, uh, the nation of Israel and the Jews were seen as the scourge of the earth. Uh, the Catholics and the Reformers hated the Jews because they said the Jews killed Christ. And so they saw the Jews as an absolutely God-forsaken group of people that were worth nothing and, and were worthy to be destroyed. If you've ever read Martin Luther's writings about the Jews, boy, they're excoriating, deeply anti-Semitic. And, and the Catholic Church was that way as well. It was not until a revival of this understanding that God still has a plan for the Jews and that was also helped by the horrible way that they were treated in World War II and the attempted genocide of the Jews by Nazi Germany that the Christian church actually began to change and become one of the foremost advocates for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel. And now that's changing again today. As Reformed theology becomes popular again, uh, and as um, various different perspectives on the tribulation uh, begin to find dominance, support for Israel is waning among God's people. Now, as I say that, as I say support for Israel, I, I'm going to qualify that. Let me give you a few verses here about God's plan for Israel, and then I'm going to qualify what it means to support them. So, uh, there's always been a remnant of believers in Christ who have believed that the nation of Israel still has a part in God's plan. We rest upon good footing in these claims where this is not a new idea. Paul says this in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about God's plan for Israel. And in Romans 11, the Bible says this. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. How do we know God, Paul is speaking about um, national Israel and not about spiritual Israel here? Seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. He's speaking about national Israel here, isn't he? He's rooting this in bloodlines, not in spiritual lineage. He goes on to say this. I'm going to be skipping a lot. I apologize for that. He goes on to say this. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. The, the distinction here is between Israel and the Gentiles. And if we're saying that Israel is the church here, that's what Reformed theology teaches, that's what Catholicism teaches, that Israel is the church, that, that, Israel was, that the church has become Israel, well then how has blindness happened to Israel? God has given the church blindness? No, 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 no. God has not blinded his own church to anything. That's interpretively silly, especially when he began Romans 11 by talking about national Israel, and he's, he's comparing Israel to the Gentile world here. The Gentile, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, that's coming into the church. Blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come into the church. This has got to be about national Israel, folks. 
And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, they, who, Israel, are enemies for your sakes. The church is not the enemy of the gospel. This is not the church. This is Israel. But as touching the election, they are beloved of their father's sake. They are still God's elect. Remember, election has nothing to do with salvation. Election has everything to do with purpose. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Daniel 9 tells us that there are six promises made for God to fulfill in Israel. They must be fulfilled in Israel. Because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God does not tell Israel, I'm going to do these six things in you. And then the church comes along and he says, ha, fooled you. I'm going to redefine what Israel is now. He pulls out the rug from under them and then laughs. No, God would not do that. God cannot do that. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God will not repent of the gifts that he's given. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. That's the unbelief of Israel. Even so, now these, uh, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he have, might have mercy upon them all. Now we need to give the qualifiers. What does this mean and what does this not mean? What does it mean that all Israel shall be saved? What, it do, what does not mean that all Israel shall be saved? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Only men and women, the only men and women in Israel, of Israel, the only Jewish men and women, the only people of the nation of Israel who will be in heaven with us one day are those who accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, who accept Jesus as their Messiah. In other words, pastor, does that mean that everyone, that all the Israelites are, and I, I get this question so often from people, in the, in, not, not in our church, but in the broader church, aren't all, Israel, aren't all the Jews going to heaven basically by default? No. If they have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah, they're not going to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Jews in Israel today, the Orthodox Jews who have rejected Jesus, who say he's just a good teacher, they are not going to be in heaven unless they accept Jesus as their Messiah, unless they accept him as Savior. They are not in by default. As a matter of fact, that's the whole point of the seven years, tribulation. Sometimes when you have a spirited horse, spirited child, spirited whatever it is, you have to break that child's will before they comply. You don't break their spirit, but you break their will, right? Israel has hardened themselves against God. What is the tribulation for? It's to break Israel's will. To bring them to their knees to where they finally listen. They finally accept Messiah. They had the chance the first time. Jesus came. He did his miracles. He did wonders. They said, no, next time he's going to come with the rod to chasten them to himself, to break them down to where they will finally accept him. It has to happen because he cannot fulfill his plan unless he can save Israel, unless he can bring about the kingdom that he's promised to them. That's why the seven years must happen. Israel is living currently in complete rejection of their Messiah. And those last seven years will be the catalyst that will bring the nation to their knees and finally convince them that Jesus is he. 
and they'll finally acknowledge Jesus as Savior and they'll finally bow before him and that generation of Israel shall be saved. Not all the others. The others, they've rejected their Messiah and they'll live with the consequences of their choice. So it does not mean that the Jews are in by default. In fact, quite the opposite is true. It also does not mean that we as Christians must feel compelled to support every policy of the Israeli government. When we as a church are called to support Israel or we choose to support Israel, that does not mean that we have to support every politician, every policy, every action of the nation. Are they the nation of Israel over there in the Middle East? Yes, they are. Are they Jewish people? In part, not all. Are they, are they Jewish people? Many of them are. But to blindly advocate for them politically without reservation is, is not something that we're called to do. I can support God's plan for the nation of Israel and so support the Jewish people without supporting their dumb decisions. Without supporting their bad policies. Now, I'm not explicitly saying that Israel has a lot of bad policies. They are a beacon of, of, of hope in, in a very dark area of the world, in many ways. As far as they're, they're, they're bringing Western ideals to a, a very backward land. But many Christians have been brought to this conundrum where they say, well, I'm supposed to support Israel, and then they hear of some of the things that, that, that some of the choices that their, their politicians have made, that the nation has made, and they say, wow, I guess I have to support that because I support Israel. No, you don't. Just like I can support the United States of America without agreeing with everything that America does, without agreeing with everything that my leaders do, because I'm a believer and my loyalty first and foremost is to my God. The Jewish religion is a... Re uh, and, and likewise... So we don't have to support the, the, the Jewish state as far as their decisions. We, support, we would naturally, I would imagine, support their right to exist, support their right to live, support their right to their land because it's their land that God has given to the nation of Israel. We know that from the Old Testament clearly. The Jewish religion benefits from many of the natural blessings of truth because they believe in the Torah. But we do not have to support... Orthodox Judaism as a religion it's a pagan religious system and the people that follow Orthodox Judaism will one day be in hell if they do not repent it's a pagan religion and we need to understand that we need to stand we need to set these lines properly they, Orthodox Judaism has rejected Jesus as Messiah therefore it is false it may have a lot of truth that they've assimilated from the Old Testament and they, they, they benefit from that truth, as anybody who assumes truth does. But that does not mean that we have to say, oh, you're an Orthodox Jew, you're, 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 you're fine. No, if you have not accepted Jesus as Messiah, you're, you're on the wrong side of God. Yet God has his eye upon his people, and he always will. We can support the nation of Israel we can support their right to the land which God has given them. It is their eternal home. It is their eternal right. Without calling every decision that their government, their country, their people, or their religions make as right and good. And, and indeed, we, we ought to find that line. Support their right to exist. Support their right to the land of promise. Generally speaking today, as I mentioned, Israel is, does stand as a, as a generally bright light in an otherwise very dark and backward region. 
But our loyalty is to God's plan. Our loyalty is to the 70 weeks. Our loyalty is to the fact that God still has a plan for Israel. Our loyalty is to the fact that God still loves them and intends to redeem them back to himself. Indeed, this was why in 2 Corinthians, as Paul went around taking a collection, he was taking a collection for the nation, for, for the Christians in Israel. And he says, these folks, this, the, the nation of Israel is your spiritual heritage. Let's give something back to them. He recognized that there's a heritage there as well, as we're loyal to God's plan. So God having a plan for national Israel, in summary, does not mean that all are saved. It does not mean that we have to support their government's decisions, their national decisions. It doesn't mean we have to believe that their people can do no wrong. It means that the church supports Israel as a nation and recognizes and acknowledges that God still has a plan for them and that we are not Israel. Spiritual Israel, that's fine, but we are not Israel. We are not the nation. We are not an inheritor of all of the nation's promises de facto. And that's good because we're also not an inheritor, that means, of all their curses, which they're kind of going through right now. What does it mean for us? I, I, wanted, I, I feel like this application, the application that we've given, that God still has a plan for Israel, is very relevant, is enough as far as it goes. But I want to let, leave us this morning in the same place that Paul leaves the church in Romans 11. He's been telling them about God's plan for the nation, for the nation of Israel. That's what we studied this morning, the 70 weeks of, of Israel given to God, given by God to Daniel, 70-week plan for Israel, 483 years of that has already come to pass, literally. We will expect the last seven years of it to come to pass, literally. We would expect that God still has a plan for them, literally. And as we consider this, and as Paul wanted to express this concept to the church, he wrote this in Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. What should all of this study do for us? Well, number one, it should make us wise in understanding the times. But I hope it leaves you in awe a little bit at God's wisdom and God's plan and God's timing and the, the incredible way that God weaves history together for his purposes. That we would say with Paul, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That we would marvel as Paul does here, at the incredible wisdom of God in the way that he used Israel and then he has set them, on, he has set them aside for a time and if we were to read all of 11, uh, Romans 11, effectively what Paul says is, look, the reason why God set them aside for a time is so that you could come into the church, is so that you could be saved. Israel is put on hold. There's a pause between the 69th and the 70th weeks for our benefit. For us, 
their demise is your blessing. As we read of anti-Semitism, as we read of all of the troubles and trials that, that the Jewish people historically have had to go through, they're going through that in judgment for their own rejection of, of, of God through Christ. But all of that rejection that they've gone through has redounded to the benefit of the Gentile nations in the church. Because them being set aside opened up the gospel for the world in a brand new way. And that wonder and that joy and that amazement is what I'd like to leave you with this morning. And I hope it renewed your understanding of how we're to support Israel. And I hope it renewed your understanding that Israel still has a purpose. And I hope it settled maybe some questions about times and, and such. But I hope you also leave today with a renewed love and appreciation for God's plan and how much the fingerprints of love are all over God's plan. That even in this chastening, God has done it in order that we the rest of the world might be the beneficiaries. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.